Welcome to Music Business Mindset, a podcast where we're all about helping artists grow both personally and professionally. My name is David Ryan Olson. I'm excited that you're here today. Excited to chat with Todd Barrage today. He is a talented producer, musician, band member from Ontario, Canada. Todd has been all over in the music industry. He's built a YouTube channel focusing mainly on doing covers of other people's songs, also including covering an entire AFI album. So was really excited to bring him on today to talk about his experience doing all that and how everything is interconnected in the music industry. So without further ado, let's just go ahead and jump into the conversation today with Todd Barrage. All right, I'm here with Todd Barrage. Todd, how are you doing, man? Man, I am doing so good. How are you doing, David? I'm hanging in there. We are trucking along. The world is getting back to normal. Sounds like you're uh, preparing to get back to normal, too. Hopefully, you won't pass out from your shot during the middle of this interview. (laughs) I think I'm good. I think, you know, it's been five hours. I feel like if it was going to kill me, it would have killed me. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you may feel like death for a little bit, but yeah, at least you're out of the woods in, in terms of actually dying. That's good for you. Anyway, man, super glad that you're joining us today on Music Business Mindset. Would love just to kind of jump in, get to know you real quick. So why don't you just share your story? Yeah, okay. Well, my name is Todd Barrage. I'm a producer full-time. Also, I sing in a band called Theatria. And I don't know, I play a variety of instruments. I started on drums when I was 13. A year later, started learning bass. A year later, started learning guitar. A year later, started figuring out if I could sing. And then once I had all those pieces together... I wasn't into like drugs and partying and stuff when I was a kid. And I grew up in a small town where that's just like all there was. (laughs) Instead of having a life, I uh, started recording my own songs and that just never stopped. So what was it that drove you to music kind of at that age, aside from that being an alternative to the, the party small town life? Right. Like what made it? Why music specifically? The Tony Hawk games. Really? Yeah. I, I played the first Tony Hawk game in 99, I think that came out. And I was like, oh, this is a fun game. And then the second one came out. That one had Rodney Mullen in it. And so I would watch his video and it was to Bad Religion's You. And I would watch that a bunch. And so that got me sort of into punk music. And then when Tony Hawk 3 came out, the AFI song, The Boy Who Destroyed the World was the song on Rodney Mullen's video in that game. And so it was AFI specifically that sparked the, uh, this, (laughs) this. <laughs> I heard that song and it made me like really feel something the way like music had never done before. And so I wanted to do that. Just whatever that was, it was like, okay, that I feel validated as a being on this planet. So I'm going to pursue that feeling through the medium, which made me feel it, which was music. Mm, yeah, no, that's great. I think that's, that's a very, that's kind of something that we all have felt at one point or another. All of us that are, you know, connected to music, we feel like, whoa, this is like, this helps me like figure out like my place in life. This makes me feel like, you know, I'm, I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. Uh, and obviously there are a million different variations of that and it's, it's different for everybody. So you're playing Tony Hawk, you hear AFI, you hear all these other bands, then what happens after that? I mean, obviously you don't jump straight to just having a studio and, and all of that. No. So I got it for Christmas of 2001, 2000, whatever year it came out. So I got Tony Hawk 3, got obsessed with the game, the music, all that stuff. And so the following summer, I got my first drum set and I I just wanted to play fast, you know, (laughs) like all all those songs were, were punk songs. It's all the like that drum beat. So it was just that 
almost like a tick for a full year, just trying to learn that one drum beat. And to this day, like I don't play drums a lot and I need to shake off the rust if I'm playing pretty much anything else, but I can rock that beat at like 240 BPM just fine. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. No, that's great. And then being the drummer then, uh, when you're in a band, everyone leaves their stuff at your place, right? Because you don't want to take your drums. So my bandmates would leave their gear around. And so I would tinker in the time between band practices. And that over time developed into me learning other instruments. Yeah. You just start picking up everything. It sounds like you just kind of have like a musical ear. You like figured it out. Yeah, self-taught. Like I just went for it. Would you consider yourself more of a, just a musician that happens to play whatever instrument? Or do you really consider yourself like a drummer at heart that kind of dabbles on other instruments? I feel like I'm a musician that plays stuff. I relate to drummers. I connect with them and I get them. But I think that's just because it's where I started. Because drummers have traits within band dynamics, stereotypically speaking. (laughs) They're never the responsible one. (laughs) You never know for sure that your drummer's going to show up. They're always the last to get their license, stuff like that, right? So as far as that's concerned, like I'm a little more grown up, but that might just be because I picked up those other instruments, you know? (laughs) Right. (laughs) So let's keep going just on your musical journey. What happens after you kind of develop a little bit of proficiency at at all those instruments? Yeah. um, Because I wasn't into drugs and partying and stuff, basically once, well, approaching the end of high school. So around grade 12, everyone starts whatever they're going to do with their life. They start really leaning into it. And I hadn't found that. And all my friends just sort of scattered, except for a few of us. And we had a punk band called We Are Adam West. And we (laughs) wanted to record (laughs) an EP. And so me and our bass player, my friend Josh, just, we did it. And we did this like five song EP ourselves using four SM58s and like using the spill from the Tom mics as our like overheads. (laughs) (laughs) And it was all like put into this four track mixer lined into the back of the PC into Adobe Audition 1.5. So we we did that and that was a five song EP and we'd like mix on the mixer and put it in. And then we would actually, which was pretty advanced in retrospect, like we didn't have an interface, but we would still do the overdubbing, you know, like bass and we'd double track the guitars and we'd layer in vocals and like we were doing gang vocals from the first recording I ever did. So that was the two of us kind of helming that. When it came time the next year to do our full length, I had moved out of the city we were living in. And so I just did the drums on my own. And from that point on, any project I've done, I've been, I guess, the producer of. At that time, I wasn't thinking about it in that context back then, but like 100%, that's... That's what I was doing. Yeah, that seems like a pretty common career path for producers is like you're just kind of the techie guy in the band. Yeah. (laughs) And so you kind of take charge of like recording your demos, at least for my generation and your generation is like you try and figure out how to record your stuff so you can get your stuff on MySpace. (laughs) And like, yeah, yeah, literally. And then you just kind of never stop futzing around and the computer becomes your instrument at a certain point. (laughs) Oh my God. Like actually though, like my relationship with my computer is like a really weird, like the way they portrayed marriages on like late 90s sitcoms. (laughs) Like it's that. It's like, I I need it. I love it. It's everything to me. Sometimes, (laughs) you know, we have our issues. But (laughs) So at what point did it really click with you that you were going to really hone in your craft as a producer and not just be the techie guy in the band? Or was there a moment? It, It was almost immediate. It was while we were doing the We Are Adam West record. I was still in grade 12, and I remember having a conversation with my 
grade 12 English teacher because uh, the application process for universities and stuff kind of went through your homeroom teacher at the school I was at. And so she had noticed, despite what she perceived to be like my brilliance, I had applied to nothing. <laughs> like not even college, much less like an actual university. And so she pulled me aside one day to talk to me after class. She was like, like, is it a financial thing? And I was like, no, I just like, I don't need school. I've been considering dropping out of high school even. <laughs> like if it wasn't for the fact I've got two months to go, I'd be out. Like if, if I had discovered music the way I had in grade 12, in grade 10 or 11, zero chance I would have finished high school. Like I was so, I just knew. And so from that moment on, I've just kind of done it. And there've been, you know, times throughout the years where I, I have thought I could stop and tried to stop and it never works. <laughs> yeah, that's like such the musician's uh, experience. Yeah. You try to stop and you say, no, I'm going to be responsible in life. And then, no, it just like sucks you back in. I don't know if it's like addictive or we just are wired to not know how to do anything else or, or what. I think it's an existential thing, like for me anyway. I am not who I am and I can't exist in like a peaceful state of mind if I'm not creating. And so by being a producer rather than just a musician, and I don't mean just like, not as if musicians are lesser, but having both, it's like when I'm in a creative rut from a songwriting perspective, I still have stuff to work on because I'm producing other people's records. And so it's like, I can constantly exist in my happy place, which I wouldn't have if I was just one or the other. Like I, I get in production ruts, I get in musical ruts, you know, those those memes about fighting with your snare drum, like they're real. Those are real. <laughs> yep. And they keep you up at night. <laughs> yeah. Say more about why you feel like it's kind of an existential thing. I mean, it goes back to hearing that AFI song in that Tony Hawk game. It validated my existence as a as a being on this planet. The way that the pressure in the air was vibrating. Because <laughs> that's all sound is, right? Like it's it's literally, that's all it is. Just ups and downs of, of pressure over a duration of time. But whatever it did, like it just, it, it resonated with me on like a spiritual level. I'm not into like chakras and frequencies and things, but there's maybe something valid to it, right? Because like music. So yeah, it's just, I throughout the years have tried finding that same sense of purpose in relationships, in adult milestones, in furthering education. But before I committed fully because like by the time you're 19, 20, you need to start actually making money. Recording your friends for 50 bucks a song won't do it anymore. <laughs> so I was at a crossroads there in 20, 2010 and uh, I made the choice to go to business school. So I, I quit music, I thought, and uh, moved up a month early to Toronto where the college was. And in that month where I was like alone in this bedroom, I started writing the first Theatria record. <laughs> So like I quit all my bands, like I didn't bring any of my gear. I was like stashing it at my friend's house. But nonetheless, I ended up writing a full record. I had to. There was quiet time. I was alone with my thoughts and I was like, oh, this needs to happen. So yeah, that, that's where the first theater record came from. Yeah. And we'll, we'll come back to that because I want to hear more about that. But it's interesting that you say, I thought I quit music, so I went to business school. And one trend I've noticed in life, and you know, I, I think specifically within the music industry, is that you may think that you're going in one direction forever when it might just be a side quest. Yeah, and, and even then, like it, it traced back. <laughs> like <laughs> it's a side quest that helps with the main quest. Yeah, like I, I didn't go to architect school. 
I went to business school and then started my business. <laughs> yeah, yeah. People that know me know that I, I play World of Warcraft sometimes. And <laughs> it's funny because like sometimes what you think is like just going to be a little side quest actually ends up helping you with the main quest. And sometimes you never can tell. It's tough to know in life sometimes like what's going to be a side quest versus like, you know, you're quitting music, but really it's just preparing you something for down the road or, or whatever. So tell us more about like, you know, what your experience in business school was and how maybe that kind of ended up coming back around to your music career. Yeah. So I originally the first year I was there for two years. The first year I was in human resources because I, I wanted to help people. And then I found out that HR reps are just underpaid lawyers that work on behalf of the company and their entire existence is a lie. <laughs> I'm grateful. I had a really good uh, HR like professor and she was so good that I only had to go to four of her classes before I was like, oh, this is the devil. <laughs> <laughs> I went up to her at the end of class one day and I thanked her for being such a good thorough teacher and showing me what being in HR was all about in, in ways that the other professors I had didn't or couldn't. And then I just never came back. <laughs> <laughs> and then the, the following year, I uh, went to marketing because I thought that would be fun. And then when I was learning about what marketing is, you know, it's just identifying a need or sometimes inventing a need and filling that need. And just a light bulb went off in my head. And I was like, funeral home directors are literally Satan. <laughs> and by extension, marketing is the devil. So I, I dropped out for real that time. And I remember I called my mom and I was like 20, I think at the time. And I, I, I phoned my mom on the walk home from school that day. And I was just like, I, I, I can't do this. Like I've tried. It's not a matter of ability in terms of like the, the work was easy. It was fine. But like I, I, F, I, I cannot do this and not jump off my 18th floor balcony. Like I just this this isn't going to happen. So I'm uh, I don't know what to do, though. I don't know what to do at all. So on that phone call, without even hesitating, my mom was just like, well, why don't you? And then she paused for like a bit long enough that I, I thought I'd lost my connection on my phone and she was like, just move home and we'll give you the basement and you can start that studio you always talked about. So I'm, I'm really fortunate in that regard that like, it wasn't a handout as much as it was a hand up, but to have people in my life and my parents who understood that like, this is a thing I have to do and like maybe it's finally time to stop kind of fighting it and nurture it a little and see what happens. Yeah, that's great. I love that you said stop fighting it and just nurture it a little bit. Because I think often artists are like afraid to actually like commit to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 100%. It's scary. It is scary. And the music industry is the most difficult industry. <laughs> but like, yeah, it, it's up there with just basic Hollywood. But yeah, you have to invest a lot of time into nurturing it. And you're going to need a lot of help along the way. So what happened then? Uh, well, I mean, I, I dropped out. And so Theatria was formed and kind of existed while I was in college. And so I, I'd formally dropped out of school, moved back to where my parents were, which wasn't my, they had like gotten a new house, which like wasn't my childhood home. So I like was in this new room I'd never recorded in. It was just like, oh, I can make this mine kind of deal. And so I just posted on Facebook that that was happening and like, I didn't have clients lined up, right? Like, I had a few not very great self-produced records that I had done. 
Theatria, right before I had dropped out, recorded an EP at uh, my friend Adam Newcomb's studio in Coburg-ish. And so like I had that experience of what a real studio was like. And that was sort of the light bulb moment for me in terms of if I could do it before I decided that I would do it, was watching him do what I did, but just with more expensive things. And like realizing that all the little hacks I thought that like were me cheating was actually just what you do. Like what? Just like uh, splicing up a guitar riff and picking, like comping or building a guitar part, like past comping, like playing it one note at a time and stitching it together (laughs) just so the notes are clean. You know, you don't do that for ideally the whole song, but like every now and then you gotta, especially when you're in the post-hardcore, anything with a core on it, you've got to splice something at some point. And yeah, so the seed was planted then, I, I moved back, did it, posted on Facebook, hey, you know, I'm, I'm doing this thing. And then actually a, a band I'm working with now, the guitarist messaged me, because he was one of the friends I'd recorded a, a record for way back before it was a thing I was actually doing. And he had never had an experience like he had with me at that preliminary stage. And so he hit me up immediately. And basically within a week of announcing I was starting a studio, I had four months of work lined up. What? (laughs) That's nuts. Yeah, it was something. I guess just from like being active in bands in the scene and stuff, it had built up this sort of low-key simmering demand of like, man, I wish Todd could do our records, but it's not a thing he does because I was fighting it the whole time. And when it finally came time to say, all right, let's go, it was just, there was a sea of of work for me already. Yeah. Well, it's almost like the market told you (laughs) that like you needed to do it. (laughs) Yeah. Because I thought I would do it for the summer and it would stop. So like I had that, you know, May, June, July, August booked. And I, I thought I was really lucky. And so even at that point, I was like, this is cool. So every record I did, I did like it was my last because it could have been. They always can be. And so that sort of level of, I guess, work ethic and attention to detail and passion driving the projects, regardless of the budget, because it's not like I came in swinging, you know, $800 a song. Like I, I was still undervaluing myself. I think I was 150 a song that summer, which worked out to four bucks an hour. <laughs> Maybe a little more than that, but all of a sudden I'm booked eight months out. And so you start having these conversations with yourself. Like, do I raise my rates? Well, I either start saying no to records I want to do or I give them the option to say no by being too expensive for them, right? Like, And I would rather not intentionally turn down work that I like. I'll always say no to something I don't have a good feeling about, but it just sort of kept snowballing, just kept going and kept going. Well, but those are good lessons for even just like regular touring artists even. Be active in the community so you're building connections. Listen to the market when opportunities come up. Yep. <laughs> All that fun stuff. When you even kind of became a producer more full-time, that didn't stop you from being a musician as well, because you're still involved with your own band, you do your own musical projects. A lot of people feel like it's an either-or thing, or, you know, if you're going to say you're doing both, you feel like you have to be, like, drop-dead brilliant at both. What's been your journey doing both? So I had that thought that I couldn't do both. So I basically dissolved Theatria, which like I I quit it, but it's one of those bands where I don't think it would work without me. And I think the other guys agree. So I informally, uh, like we, I, you know, it was kind of formal. We, we played like a a last show. So like we broke up and, uh, I started producing and in that time I started a YouTube channel and started posting covers because that was how I would and still to this day do, try to reverse engineer sounds and make my records better. was like, I'd listen to a song and go, I want to do that. 
So the best way to learn how to do something is to actually do it. So, you know, I would do covers like uh, Under Oaths, Breathing in a New Mentality. That's a, a cover that I did a while back. Some Holly Springs Disaster. It's a Canadian hardcore band vocal covers. There's a bad version of I Believe in a Thing Called Love floating around somewhere. <laughs> I can't play guitar very well, so the third guitar solo is my mouth. <laughs> like, it, it's mixed and produced and harmonized and everything. But I would do stuff like that to try to figure out how sounds were made. And so that snowballed into, in 2014, I did a solo record, which basically was the atria without the balls. <laughs> the songs are fine, but like, it's... I don't know. With the covers, it's like I didn't write the song. So there's a collaborative component where someone has written it. I'm reimagining it. With production, it's inherently collaborative because I'm working with the artists. And with the band, it's collaborative because I'm working, uh, you know, in the band setting. So doing the solo record sort of told me pretty loudly, like, you can't do and be everything. Despite, you know, how sometimes it may feel like that because you're wearing all these hats it's like, if I can be a drummer and a bassist and a guitarist and a singer and a producer, why can I not be a full band? Because I'm not, is the answer to that question. <laughs> so shortly after that record, we made another uh, theater album. But I mean, in that interim, you know, my production got to a point where I was able to buy a house, which was crazy. Like our whole generation, especially with housing prices in Canada, like we can't buy houses. Like individuals in our generation obviously can, but like it's a problem we're facing. And, and to be able to work in an industry like music and at the age of like 24, I think I was, buy a house. Like what? what? <laughs> well, how much of that do you attribute to just exploring opportunities versus saying, I'm going to do X, Y, Z, and then it's going to work? There was never an end game, right? Because the idea in my head was always every record could be the last one. The records got better and better and better because I would rather snort crushed glass than have my second last record be the best one I made. <laughs> it needs to be the most recent one or what am I doing with my life? <laughs> so that attracted like my, my uh, geographical pull. Before I even bought my house, I was mixing records for bands from like North Carolina. And as a Canadian, like small town Canadian Nobody operating basically under my name. Like, I have a studio called Borland Studio, but, like, people know me from YouTube as Todd the cover guy or Todd the mixing tutorial guy. So to be able to have that all snowball, rein it in, and then accumulate enough of an income that a bank will look at me and be like, yeah, we'll give you $200,000. <laughs> like, are you sure? <laughs> I wouldn't, but okay. You did read I Am a Musician, right? <laughs> no, that's great. When you started your YouTube account, were you wanting to be like the cover guy or did that scare you about being pigeonholed into being the cover guy it was just something to do like i i had no expectation of anyone even watching them it was just like i i i've always liked like i've appreciated film and i did everything with my phone but i was like oh i want to i just want to like make stuff like i i make music for a job already so in order for it to feel like a hobby there needed to be another component that like i don't get paid for outside of it uh, so I just made the videos. The idea of being any sort of guy didn't occur to me because it was like I had zero, like it was a new YouTube channel. I had no subscribers. There were no expectations. I just wanted to have some fun and sing a Taylor Swift song or two. 
Right, right. Well, I know a lot of people are, are kind of always wrestling with like, well, do we do covers? And if we decide to do covers, like how many do we do? Because we don't want to be known as like a cover band. People should like our own music and blah, 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 blah. What would you say to that? <sighs> See, that one's hard because... I get to live like the best of both worlds. I do covers and my band does originals. Theatria has never done a cover. So to people who who think that, I get it. But I think if I wasn't able to do the covers on my own, 100% Theatria would be doing covers because they've been so instrumental in giving our band an audience because we we broke up again in 2017 when I quit music again. <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, the pressure of... The way, especially my mentality at the time was really unhealthy. Like I never stopped being deathly afraid of work running out. So I kept making the records better and better and better, kept working harder and harder and harder. I stopped turning anything down. I would just raise my rates, but say yes. So I, I literally had like a bounty for which I would quit sleeping. And so for all through 2017, I was sleeping twice a week, staying up till you hallucinate going, okay, it's bedtime, sleep, wake up and do it again. So like I, I'd have bands in every day and when they would sleep, cause I had a, a bedroom with bunk beds for the bands, when they would sleep, I would mix the previous band's album. I, I would just work like all through the night. Like the guys would start slowly waking up around 9, 10 AM and I'd be rendering out the night's work. How long were you able to sustain that sleep cycle? A year. Wow. It was uh, a lot of coffee <laughs> to the point where I would, I would French press espresso beans, but like a lot of it. And I would pour that espresso into my Keurig's water tank and brew coffee with espresso water. But like a few of them at a time. And I had this big like soup bowl and that would be my coffee cup. So a lot of that. At some point, I had attained a prescription for ADHD meds. And uh, I found out that if you filter them in a certain way that I won't discuss for legal reasons, <laughs> you can bypass all the fillers and gunk they put in the pills and, and just snort them. <laughs> it gets you uh, real productive real quick. And so I had this like filtration system beside my coffee machine. I thought of my body like a machine. And if I could just like tool the physiology a little bit, I could keep going. I thought... And so I ate really healthy. I exercised daily. Best shape I've been in in my life. Like I'll, I'll look at pictures uh, earlier on my Instagram account from back then. It's like that dude's jacked and his eyes are dead. <laughs> <laughs> like that is the most miserable, beautiful person I've ever laid my eyes on. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, I think not sleeping. The only reason why you didn't die is because you ate so well. Oh, 100%. Did this ever come back to bite you? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so what ended up happening, the lack of sleep combined with taking on all the work in the world led to me having a string of like really unseemly clients, heavy drug use, violence. Like I'm not a gun guy. I'm Canadian. <laughs> but like seeing a gun in my home and like not being threatened by it, but just like Someone bringing a firearm into, you know, like I'm such a hippie, even by Canadian standards, that it's like, bro, what? But like my life just became this, this ball of misery because I didn't have the cognitive function to filter out the bad decisions. So like the work was still great from an artistic perspective, like some of the best records I've ever made. 
the band Fortunate Losers, uh, they're not one of the bad clients. They were like this glimmer of, of, of hope kind of in that sea of, of 2017. But I did a record for them. And to this day, depending on your, your metric of, of how you measure quality, I'd say it's my best or one of my best records. And that's one I did four years ago. Just like it, I was doing really good work, but that was the only thing I was getting focused to. So yeah, my, my mental health deteriorated, my work experience deteriorated, and what ended up happening is I lost my mind, changed my phone number, sold my house, and started working at a guitar store early 2018. Wow. Yeah, and, and so that was you know another time that I, I had quit music, and uh, it was like 4 a.m., I was like contemplating my existence, and I was like, you know what? Before I do anything drastic, I'm just going to apply at this guitar store and see. And they, like, right away, they were like, we have been waiting for you. Because they knew me, because what I do for a living, I was in there all the time. So that was neat. It was like a, a little two-year vacation from making music that I thought, you know, at the time, again, I thought was permanent, but I'm always wrong. <laughs> always keep getting pulled back. So then what happened that pulled you back in? I uh, met my fiance, Katie, about six months into working there, I think. Oh, no, I, I met her just prior. But essentially, from the day I met her, I haven't gone a night without sleeping. It's just like she brings me down in like a really good way. Like she doesn't bum me out. She's not depressing, <laughs> but like she just, she tames my crazy. So like from the day I met her, I was just like, I can't be this and have a person like that in my life and have her stay. So uh, I started sleeping. I got my health in check. I cold turkey, like didn't pick up a guitar for two years. And then one day, a number of things happened in, in sequence. We got a new manager at the guitar store who was useless. Like that job was like a party 24 seven. It was sick. And then it just wasn't. All of a sudden it was a job. <laughs> and I was like, yo, I, I have never had a job in my life. I'm not starting now. So that happened and I was unhappy where I was. I got an email from AFI reminding me that Sing the Sorrows 15th anniversary or something was coming up. And that bummed me out because uh, before I'd quit music, I got like 80% of the way through making that record, the Sing the Sorrow cover album. All I had to do was uh, do the lead vocals, I thought. By the time I came around to finish it, I ended up redoing most of it. But that happened and I was like, oh, I need to start making music. I need to do that again. And then this one day, the guitarist from the band that was my first client when I first started recording professionally he just appeared in the store. I was like, hey, you work here? And I was like, yeah. He's like, you don't record anymore? And I was like, no. And he's like, that sucks. We want to make an album. <laughs> and so I just, <laughs> I just, I looked at him and I was like, uh, I can bring a laptop like to your house and like we can do it guerrilla style. And so we spent that weekend and this is like the week before COVID really hit. And so we spent that weekend at his place. We tracked out the scratch tracks for the record and I came into work Monday and I quit. I was just like, you know what? I'm just, I'm going back. And it was the same situation again. I had no idea what would happen in, in terms of would the work be there? Like I felt that I had betrayed music and that it, it wouldn't want me back. So I, I had this sort of attitude of, uh, I don't know if you've ever been in this situation, but when you're trying to get back with an ex and so you're just, you're the <laughs> best version of yourself that <laughs> you never thought could exist and like better than the honeymoon version of you that she thought you were when it first started the first time. <laughs> you're being better than that guy and he never even existed. So it was like that with music. So I, I you know, I was like, oh, I'm coming back again. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, 
like two weeks later, just the world shut down. And it was just like, what? I, I, you kidding me? <laughs> I was just about to get rolling again. And then uh, that happened. But like, I, I still, I was very common sense. I feel my version of common sense throughout the pandemic where I would still do work and I would still, I would record everything at the client's place and, and bring my interface and my laptop. And so, you know, you mask up, you sanitize, you go, you work, you come back home, you strip off all your clothes, chuck them in the laundry, you have a shower, give your girlfriend a, a hug hello. And then I would take two weeks off in between every client and just kept that going. And I, I got tested so much that to this day, uh, this nostril is still uh, like a little scabby, even though I haven't been tested in like three months. But just in terms of like an abundance of caution and doing whatever I reasonably could to get to do music for a living again. Going right back to being above and beyond, but like refusing to work more than eight hours in a day, making sure I slept, only working with people who feel right. Because you can always tell when you meet someone, you know? Do you have any ways that you kind of make sure that you are making good decisions with that? Like, I mean, it's one thing to say, it's like, yeah, I'm going to I'm gonna do it right this time. I'm going to sleep. I'm going <laughs> to make sure that I'm not taking on terrible clients or playing bad shows or, or whatever. But like, you know, what, what's been your journey for actually staying on that? Just zero tolerance. Like I, I, I will not work more than eight hours in a day because I mean, I was able to balloon my career so quickly in such a small span of time the first time around that there's a certain instinct I, I must have that just works. And so I, I'm never going to question that side of it. However, I'm no longer going to pursue it at the expense of the rest of my life the way I, I did the first time. Because, you know, I was in my early 20s back then. I had the fear and uh, that drove me. And this time around, like I am, you know, I'm 30. Like I don't care anymore. You know, like I have no aspirations of being the next Jerry Finn. So I, I'm good with just doing awesome work with awesome people and letting that be what it is. And, and again, like this time around, I have uh, Katie in my life. And like I, I said, she, she simmers my crazy. So there's not a ton I need to be cognizant of other than, you know, sticking to the basics, you know, half up front, half when we're done in terms of charging. Then there's money's not a problem, which I got sloppy with, with some of the more unseemly clients, you know, years prior all of a sudden, you know, they're hounding you for mixes while you're hounding them for money and like just no one's happy and it's, it's really confrontational. Uh, that doesn't exist anymore and I refuse to let it. But I think a big thing is, uh, and this is something I would have told myself forever ago too, is just make the record. Don't kill yourself making it. Just make it and make it good, but like make it, get it out. You will have made mistakes in terms of, you know, the, the mix or whatever, but that'll happen even if you work on it forever. So I, I would rather listen to a record that's out than never get to hear the perfect record. And so I, I brought that philosophy in because I've given myself these time constraints. If I have a week to mix a record, that's a, like a really finite amount of time where before I would cheat sleep and, you know, I would do stimulants to work faster so that time was merely a concept to me back then. So, so this time around, it's like, no, I just need to do the work, get it done, move on. Yeah. Well, I think musicians early in their career or even late in your career, I mean, like, you know, we, we all have a tendency for insecurity and one of the symptoms of insecurity is that you feel like you have to work super, super hard and suffer for what you're doing. Yes. Yeah. Cause you don't deserve to get to do it. Right. And you know, you're worried about 
what are people going to think and all that stuff. But the, the funny thing that you mentioned, it sounds like you, you've started to kind of get a handle on, is that if you're suffering, your art ends up suffering. Like if you are not in a healthy place, your art is not going to connect with people. And this is a huge problem that I see in the music industry with all people in the music industry, whether you're a producer, whether you're an artist, whatever lane you're in, not taking care of yourself is almost idolized. <laughs> like It is 100%. And I'm not talking about like, oh, LOL, hashtag self-care, where it's like, I'm going to go to the park today and not do work, but like actually setting up your life for success. Like, are you exercising? Are you getting sleep? Do you have friends? Do you have hobbies outside of music? Do you have like a semi-consistent work schedule, even if you're on the road? Like, you know, all those types of things. Yeah, that stuff's huge. Because I remember I used to have this like, you know, the hustler mentality. It's like, oh, you need to be out there. Every conversation you have needs to further your passion. And every day you need to accomplish something towards your goal. And so like, if you haven't yet on a given day and you like religiously believe that you end up like not sleeping because you haven't done the one thing a day yet, you know, or you haven't felt like you have yet. And, but you're absolutely right. Like suffering is so idolized and caked into the culture that that's actually been a really fun experience now working with bands again is a lot of them still have that mentality. And I, I get to like come in like a shaman and be like, Bro, but what if you were happy? Because your songs are more so than most other things you create. They're a little time capsule of who you were in a given moment where like, you know, nothing against like woodwork and carpentry, but if you build a deck and it could be the most beautiful deck in the world, it's a deck. It's there to be stood on and barbecued on or whatever. But a song is like that, that's you. And like people will listen to it, but they will listen to it because they connect with you not because it's a beautiful piece of furnished wood, you know? <laughs> like, it, it's one of the few things you create that's actually, regardless of, like, even my song, Venus, I just put out. I don't know if you've heard it. I have not yet, but I love the name. <laughs> it is uh, everything you're thinking of and more. Like, that song has a message. And that message is, I'm going to do what makes me happy. And what I wanted to do in, in the moment I wrote and recorded Venus is I, I wanted, I just wanted to make a silly song using just the word Venus on every instrument. So like the drums are me going, Venus, 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 Venus. And then there's like a shaker in the chorus that's me going, Venus, 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 Venus. <laughs> and, and all the lyrics are the word Venus and there's a bass line and there's like a, uh, like a, a back and forth part. And it's just this two minutes of, of structured chaos. <laughs> but like even a song like that, it's so me that there's no way any serious song, any serious artist is making is not in some way a reflection of themselves. Even if they're writing a song in like on purpose in the opposite perspective of their own, that's telling in and of itself, right? Like you're st there's always you in something. I'd argue even the more you try to remove yourself from it. Yeah. That's great. So let's transition to talking about this cover album that you did. It almost sounds like covering an entire AFI album is almost a moment of full circle-ness. You're going from hearing it on Tony Hawk to this is why I made music. And it's like, you know, I'm going to pay tribute to something foundational for my development in life. How did this come to be? I mean, because like most people, when they say I'm going to cover a song, they cover a song. They don't cover a whole album. Yeah. 
Uh, it was a number of things. One is like, I'm an AFI fan. AFI fans are crazy. Like just the most batshit insane people without tilting the scale into like fearing for your life territory. And it's from a place of love as evidenced by the fact that I, I would dedicate like a good chunk of my, not of my life, but you know, of the past couple of years has, has been spent just like learning, recording, re-recording, mixing, filming videos for these songs. But uh, it was a number of things. There's that love that I just mentioned. Jerry Finn is my favorite producer and he passed away in 2009, I want to say. So he just predated the like YouTube era or even like the, the sound on sound really being a big deal kind of era. So interviews with that guy don't exist because he predated the information age a bit, and uh, he was a workaholic. So he, even if he was around during YouTube, he wouldn't have had time to do interviews anyway. So there's very little you can glean on the internet of what makes a Jerry Finn record work. All that you can tell is as soon as he passed away, all the bands that worked with him started sucking. And it's heartbreaking, and I would never want to distill the man's life to anything like just that, but from a production influence kind of standpoint. That's something I noticed, which was like, okay, so he had something special. I would like to know for myself what that was and make a whole record. Because anyone, like you said, anyone can cover a song, but like, what am I really going to learn from a song? I'm going to learn how to make one guitar tone work in one place. I'm going to learn maybe a couple vocal arrangement tricks, but there's so much more even in, in bands without as diverse of a stylistic approach to their songwriting, a full album has way more decisions to be made because you're, you're kind of mastering while you're mixing when you work on a record like that because you, you need to make sure, because everything's so diverse, that it's still cohesive. So it was just this crash course in my favorite producer's brain. And also, you know, my, my favorite band, right? Like, I, I wanted to know also, like, would those guitar parts feel like to play? Because I've listened to them my whole life, and I've never really sat down and tried to learn them because they, they're so daunting to me. Like, he's every single second of every single song, he's playing all six strings, and that's weird. <laughs> no one plays electric guitar like that. Like, it's not the most crazy, complex stuff, but, like, it's super intricate and, like, lots of subtleties, so... It was, I don't know, just something I, I felt like I needed to do. It's, you know, like kind of a killing your gods scenario too. Favorite producer, favorite band, favorite album. What if I did it and could make it sound a little better? I'm not saying that I pulled that off, but what if? So there, there's a, a, lot, uh, a lot that went into it. A lot of like self-actualization, doing something for my younger self. You know, I'd covered so many songs. I was a YouTube cover guy and I never did an AFI song. Not once. They're my favorite band and I wouldn't touch them because they were untouchable. And the fandom thinks the same thing. They think the songs are untouchable. So I was like, well, okay, but but what if I touched them? <laughs> <laughs> and what if I just kept touching them for like seven months? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what was the response to covering an entire album? That was nuts. I expected someone to dox me and set my house on fire. <laughs> like, <laughs> because it's this untouchable album, right? And uh, it's this passionate, loving fan base. And I had seen people before cover AFI specifically. And you go in the YouTube comments and like, people are not kind when you cover an AFI song. Like their instinct is never to say, hey, good job. Their instinct is always... Only Davey could sing these songs, <laughs> you know? So everyone was super nice, which again, I did not expect. The AFI fan club, which I had been like reading my whole life, right away started sharing my videos, which was bizarre because it's like, y'all are like, I don't know, like you make content that I read every day. I spend more time reading AFI HQ 
stuff than I spend listening to the band, you know? So, like, in, in, in a way, it's like the AFI HQ people are, like, bigger idols of mine than the band themselves. So, having, having their blessing and support was just, like, really cool. The band members themselves, everyone except uh, Davey, the singer, reached out at one point or another just to say, like, hey, what you're doing is really fucking cool. Like, good job. And, and that was neat. Because, like, I don't know how I would feel. Because, like you said, no one covers albums. So, I have no idea how I would feel if anyone covered a, a song of mine, much less an album. Like, that must be really, I don't even know what it would be. Like, watching someone sort of, like, reverse engineer and unravel, like, one of your masterpieces it's got to like, I don't know, to me, that would be like not realizing that this is a window and not a two-way mirror kind of deal. <laughs> it it must have felt it, you know, like I, I got in there and I got really detailed and I got some stuff wrong, but I tried to recreate it the best I could. And uh, there's kind of trying to get in their head of, you know, back when they were 26 and they're like in their mid 40s now. And so that must have been a, a trip for them to see someone 20 years later still revisiting their work but yeah like my instagram follower count which is the only metric of success in this world <laughs> tripled <laughs> you know since i started posting like i had like maybe five or six hundred like dormant followers because I, I had quit music and just recently uh like rejoined the world now i think i'm up around like 15 ish hundred which is crazy like a, a thousand afi fans were like this is good i want to see more afi fans don't even like afi <laughs> <laughs> like AFI puts out a, a new record like literally like three weeks ago and I, I saw comments like uh, on uh, Instagram and on, on YouTube and stuff and it's like they should just make Sing the Sorrow again and then someone else will come and be like this Jewish looking guy did but better and it's like <laughs> 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 if you can get past the curls they're really good <laughs> That's actually, I've gotten remarks like that. It's one of the funniest. It's like, you don't fit the aesthetic of AFI songs. And it's like, pale, check. Black t-shirt, check. Skinny, check. <laughs> oh, I'm Jewy. Yeah. Like, <laughs> Anti-Semitism is deep in America. Jesus. <laughs> yeah. Lesson here is just don't look at the comments section ever. <laughs> I live for negative comments. There was this guy who every single week he would go out of his way to comment on Facebook and say, these are great, but I can't get past his voice. But every week, every single week, that and that, that dude loved me more than anyone who loved me loved me. Like, <laughs> you know he thought about me, you know, in between videos. And he would wait and be like, oh, it's Sunday at noon. Better tell him his voice sucks. <laughs> like, <laughs> So... Covering an AFI album, you got your your most important metric, your Instagram follower up. I'm sure this has led to, to more traction in other areas of your life, you know, with your band releasing music again, with you putting out Venus as a song, you know, all that stuff, selling merch. What else have you have you been up to lately that that's helped? Well, I sort of like I, I married the cover album with the revival of my YouTube channel as like a, a, a mixing education experience. So like I've always considered myself the shitty, incoherent, and will forever be uh, version of, of Graham Cochran. <laughs> He's so eloquent and does such a good job of like teeing up a point and just 
And then my videos are always like, I recorded my snare and uh, I don't think for sure the mic was even pointing at the snare. So here's what I did to fix it. <laughs> and I will just painstakingly walk you through like how I made it sound progressively worse until all of a sudden everything clicked. And there's no big takeaway in my videos other than try anything. All my mixing tutorials can be distilled into those two words. Like, try stuff. <laughs> There's never going to be this one secret trick that works every time, so I'm just going to show you all my worst blunders and how I salvaged them. <laughs> so I married that with Patreon, which I, I finally started doing after all these years. And so, like, if you're on my, my Patreon in the all-access tier, when I cover an AFI song in a mixing video, I give you all the multi-tracks for that session so that you can mix an AFI song. Why not? I can't sell tracks that I didn't create or write, but I can give them as a gift as part of a perk, I assume. We'll find out. Maybe after this airs, my, my Patreon goes dark, but... <laughs> <laughs> You're going to quit Patreon and come back to it. <laughs> I'll just come back on the next platform after. Yeah, it's like a four-year cycle. Um, but, but yeah, so it's that album is sort of like propelled me forward into every avenue like uh, Theatria has a bunch of new fans because people heard me sing these songs you know there's like 20 of them and uh, they're like okay I heard 20 songs you sang can I hear more please it's like you can because the week after I put out this uh, song about rabbits I'm putting out a song called Daddy Issues over here <laughs> tell the story a little bit about uh, Daddy Issues because I have heard this story briefly and would love to know a little bit more Sure. Now I'm curious if I like was making sense when I told the story before because I don't remember what I've said about it. But what I understand in this moment, that song to be right after I had quit the music store, you know, I made the decision to start making music again. I picked up my guitar and I started learning uh, I Can Tell by Seosin because I wanted to, to cover that. And so I got like halfway through learning it. And then I was like, I cannot play these guitar parts. Like I, it's not happening, but they're in double drop C for that song. So I just, I left my guitar in that tuning and just started noodling around. And I was like, oh, oops. <laughs> and I just demoed it out right, right then and there. Cause I had no intention of, of starting writing again. I sold my house. I changed my phone number. I disappeared. Like I, my band didn't have contact with me for two years. <laughs> like I just, I vanished. So all of a sudden I'm writing Theatria songs and like I knew, you know, like you write a song like that and it's like, this is my band. Uh oh. And so like I wrote the instrumental and uh, I was going through a lot in terms of uh, like betrayal with a, a friendship that I had had. So the dynamic of that friendship was this guy was like the paternal figure of the group and uh, I was like the stepdad is what we called me. So it was, it was daddy and stepdaddy. And so I wrote the song Daddy Issues about the dissolution of that friendship because like he wasn't a, a father figure to me, but like definitely like a familial almost bond that you look up to them. So it felt fitting. And yeah, I, I just, I, I wrote what I felt and I sat on it for a year and then I finally recorded it when I was no longer angry you know, about everything that had gone on. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, that's daddy issues. It's just uh, finding out that your, your hero kind of sucks and having to live with that because like, it's not just finding out your hero sucks, right? Like when someone is inspirational to you, part of your identity is tethered to them because in some way you want to be like them, right? Like I wasn't like literally trying to be this guy, but there were aspects of myself that already existed that he sort of helped foster. And it was really jarring for me 
to have that falling out because it was like, man, these things I thought I loved about myself, if taken to their logical extreme, are you and you're a pitiful man. So it was, you know, a lot of checking myself too. So I poured everything into the song. So I would always know, you know, don't love people too much, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So when the song came out, you kind of had some fun promotion and merch around that. Why don't you share a little bit about what you did for the promotion? Sure. So uh, we're still working on an album and it's up in the air if Daddy Issues will be on it, but we knew that we wanted to, before we do the, the run-up to the album, we wanted to have a, a song out so that we're not just like, hey, we're back, and just like limp over the start line again. So like we wanted to like set the stage, make a little sort of a party so that when we want to hype people up, there's already a base to be hyped from. So this was probably in, in April we were discussing it. And uh, Daddy Issues was basically done at that point. And so I was looking at the calendar and I was like, yo, we could release it the weekend of Father's Day. <laughs> and everyone was just like, yeah, that's that's happening. Like, we're, we're not going to debate this. Like, cool, that lined up, we're doing it. Which is, is really neat. My band's really good to just jump on funny stuff. So, uh, you know, we got t-shirts that just say Daddy Issues in a big circle on them. We got like skateboards made. We got other stuff. But the the biggest thing, and I was I was like, this was a deal breaker for me was we need condoms. (laughs) And those condoms need to say daddy issues on the wrapper. (laughs) Because that's an idea that we'd been bouncing around since uh, 2012. Was like, we'd go to shows and look at merch tables and some people get like, oh, we have cassettes, we're fancy. And like the really fancy people had like booty shorts. And it was like, yo, but what if we had condoms at our merch table? No one has that. (laughs) Yeah. Nobody has that. I think, I think Kesha did it for a tour and like, praise be to Kesha, but like, she's not a band. She's on this whole other level that I'm, it's off the screen where my hand is. <laughs> like, so like to this day in my head, then it's like, okay, no bands, like maybe Kiss has, but I don't know they have because they're known for so many other things. So it was just one of those things. It was like, we need to, we need to make condoms that say daddy issues and then market them on Father's Day so that you cannot be a father. (laughs) Oh man, I love it. Cause it's just, it it all just works together. So stinking well, but the fun thing about condoms aside from, you know, protection is um, that as a piece of merch, even if like some other people have done it before and you're not the first one to have this idea, it's like, who has condoms? If I'm at a show and I'm just randomly there, and I've never heard about you, and you say, LOL, we're selling condoms. <laughs> I mean, like, <laughs> I may buy that just for the novelty of it, and I'm sure people bought it just for the novelty of it. Yes. We did a test run of, like, not very many condoms, but, like, enough just to test the draw for them, and it's it's immediately evident. It's like, okay, so we need to order them by the thousands next time. <laughs> Because COVID's over and people are getting busy. <laughs> yeah. Like, hey, all right, you've been wearing a mask up here, boys. <laughs> but what if <laughs> she's up? <laughs> <laughs> oh, good stuff. Good stuff. Any other fun merch you've, you've done over the years or are looking ahead at? Yeah. So, like, historically, there was this shirt that we did. It was uh, just a Pokeball shirt. It just looked like a Pokeball, but instead of saying Pokemon, it was our band name. And so we we had done that, like, sort of in that uh, parody, satire kind of realm before. But other than that, like, 
we've never really been a merch band and I'm trying to change that because I've been telling all the bands I work with that your music is not the product ever. It just isn't. Your music, it's the advertisement for your clothing brand, basically, (laughs) is what I like to tell people. Like you're a shirt company, minimum shirt company. That's going to be your income. Like when you're not playing shows, you're sure as hell not making a, a great living off Spotify. You need to be selling shirts. When you are playing shows, I don't know what it's like other places in the world, but in Ontario, oh my God, like you might get gas and a half unless you're a really big band. So it's like, well, okay, so ask for gas, skip the and a half and just go ham on merch. And so that's a deal we always did with promoters to like sort of grease the wheels a bit. We'd be like, look, here's what you're offering us. So knock off 50 bucks, but give us a better time slot. And so we would use that better time slot to, to sell the merch. And so like we, you know, make hundreds of dollars a night routinely, even, you know, in the dead of winter when there's like 20 people there and you're still somehow selling 10 shirts, you know, it's, you need to be fun people so that people are hanging around your merch tape. Like there's a lot that goes into that, but uh, yeah, no, it's, it's absolutely necessary. So the condoms were sort of the next logical uh, step of that, that thought process is like, okay, we, we need people to not only want to hang out because we're nice and cool, because like meme culture's everywhere now, everyone's nice and cool and funny, it's not going to be enough. We need rubbers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 100%. I will preach this until I'm blue in the face. Your business model these days should revolve around building true fans and having them support you directly. And that might mean merch, that might mean Patreon, that might mean Kickstarter, that might mean events. I don't know. But you cannot expect to live just on streams, CD sales, and your show guarantee. You have to figure out a way to actually like own your financial stack. You're leaving too much up to chance otherwise. Like especially if you're banking on Spotify plays, like that's a lottery. Like that there's so much goes into like a uh, playlist placement if you get placed at all. Mm-hmm. And that's always temporary and superficial. Just because someone listened to your song while it was on a playlist doesn't mean that they are a fan that's willing to pay you money. Yeah, it's like you've got to win the lottery again and again and again. Like it, It's not just winning the lottery at, at that point if that's all you're kind of banking on. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Todd, any just last pieces of advice to artists who are out there looking to grow their career in the music business? Yeah, I I guess the best single piece of advice that I could give to anyone is just to be awesome and consistent and reliable. If you can nail those three, as long as you don't suck, you should be good. (laughs) (laughs) Suck as a person or suck as a musician. Both are required to not suck. Yeah, (laughs) I mean, that's really it. Just make good stuff and be good people. Well, Todd, dude, thanks so much for coming on today. Where can uh, people check you out on the internet? Man, thanks for having me. Yeah, my my most active social media presence would be on Instagram, at Todd Barrage. Also YouTube, Todd Barrage, that's B-A-R-R-I-A-G-E. I've also got a studio. My website is borlandstud.io. So just Borland Studio with a dot before the I-O. That's probably it. You should listen to Daddy Issues or Venus. They're both on Spotify and YouTube and Apple Music. And everywhere you can hear music, uh, Daddy Issues being a Theatria song, which is my band, and uh, Venus being a Todd Borland original. (laughs) Nice. Well, dude, thanks so much. 
So that's it for my conversation today with Todd Barrage. You can check him out online. Go watch his videos. Go listen to his covers. They're spot on. Go watch his new song, Venus. Go buy some condoms from his band. (laughs) Real quick before we head out today, two favors. First, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, would you just give us a quick five-star review? It really helps more people find the show. Also, if you are an artist that wants to know more about this business model that we've hinted at today, where you are getting fans to directly support you in the new music business, would love for you to sign up for our free workshop about building a sustainable career as a musician. Just go to musicbusinessmindset.com to sign up for that. But for now, that's it. And we'll see you next time.